welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. This morning's Bible reading is from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, entitled, The Widow's Olive Oil. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Nathan. And Ray and Rowan, it's amazing how often, as you're sitting there preparing to preach, how many of the songs you think, man, this just ties in perfectly with what I'm about to say. So that's awesome, definitely a God thing. So a few weeks ago, Luke came and asked me if I would preach today, and he explained that he would be having a couple of weeks off while Kim had her surgery. So obviously you start thinking to yourself, what what can I talk about in such a, you know, in these circumstances? I assume, you know, Luke and Kim have been on their minds this week, as it turns out, even more so with Lenny um, having his issues all at the same time. And sometimes you see issues, you see needs, you see circumstances, and it feels like they are just so much bigger than whatever we have to offer. It feels like we've got nothing because the problem is so big and our resources are so small. You look at the world and you see hundreds of thousands of people don't even have access to fresh water, and all I've got to offer is $50. You look at Kim having open heart surgery and all I've got to offer is a band-aid. It feels like the problem is so big and our resources are so small. So today, it's going to be a simple sermon. I just want to tell some, some stories. I figure Jesus told stories, so you know he's a pretty good role model. Jesus told stories. I'm just going to tell a few stories to hopefully remind us, reassure us, that no matter how bad our circumstances get, that God is ultimately in control, even when we feel like we have nothing. Have you ever thought about the word nothing? I reckon it's a great word. You know, the word nothing appears 342 times in the NIV Bible. This is a significant word, seriously. Nothing on earth compares with God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing is impossible with God. See, the secular world, they've got this worked out. Shakespeare wrote this play hundreds of years ago called Much Ado About Nothing. 
Jerry Seinfeld had a TV show that ran for nine years and 180 episodes, and it was all about nothing. <laughs> and yet the church, we've been a little bit slow to catch on. So today, if someone asks you, what did Dave talk about? Tell them he talked about nothing. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully there will be something else worth talking about today as well. So let's start off with this widow. A little widow in the Old Testament. We don't even know her name. All we know was her husband had died and left a debt. Now, this is in a society that there was no Centrelink, a very male-dominated society, and she has got a debt she cannot pay. She cannot earn enough money to pay the debt. And the consequences of that debt are horrific, unimaginable. Her two sons are going to be taken away as slaves to pay the debt. And there is nothing that she can do. I don't know what your circumstances in life are like, but I sure hope they have never been as bad as this poor widow. She was desperate. And she cries out to Elisha, the man of God, explains the situation and she asks for his help. And Elisha asks this really great question. He says, what do you have? And she says, I've got nothing. Nothing except. And you see, it's like that, isn't it? Always in our life. Whenever you feel like you've got nothing, when you think about it, it's actually nothing but a little bit of oil or nothing but a little bit of money or nothing but a gift for doing this or nothing but there's always something that you can have to offer and God can take your little resource and turn it into something fantastic, something amazing, more than enough. And that's what we see in this story. I don't know if you've ever pictured this story but this lady and her two sons going around to the neighbours and their friends and everyone in town saying, have you got any jars full of nothing? Don't give me the jars with something in them, they're no good to me, but any jars of nothing, can I please borrow them? The more the better, as many as you've got, all the empty jars. And then they go inside the house and they shut the door and she gets her little flask of oil. Now this takes faith, doesn't it, to start pouring this little oil into this big jar. But, you know, probably the younger son brings over an empty jar and she starts pouring. And she keeps pouring and it fills up and the older son takes it and stands it in the corner and the younger one brother brings another empty one and she keeps pouring and bring me another one, bring me another one and she keeps pouring and the jars keep filling up and slowly amazement turns to awe, turns to just praise God for this is incredible and she keeps on pouring bring me another one and then the younger son says, there's no more, they're all full and only then does the oil stop pouring so God didn't waste a drop and then she sells them, pays her debt and has enough money still left over to live on. See, her tiny little resource ended up being more than enough because God can do amazing things even when people have nothing. In fact, I'm convinced that sometimes I think God does his best work when we stop trying to solve it and fix it and do it all our way in our time, in our strength, and we finally just confess, Lord, this is too big for me. I can't handle it alone. Lord, it's up to you. When we finally admit that we've got nothing, that's when God can really step in and do something miraculous, something fantastic. Some people, they read the Bible and they think the God in the Old Testament seems like it's different than the God of the New Testament. And yet in the New Testament we see basically this exact same miracle applied again. You've all heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Whereas Jesus is preaching to this huge crowd of people, 5,000 men plus women plus children, a massive crowd and they're hungry and all they've got is five little loaves of bread and two fish. 
And Jesus turns one tiny little resource into more than enough for this whole crowd. In fact, there was more food left over than there was to start with. See, once again, Jesus did something incredible, even though people had nothing. It's like Jesus saw a big problem and a small resource and he said, it's okay, fellas, I've got this. And he just provided for all his people. God did something wonderful, even when the people had nothing. I particularly like this story, and it's told in Matthew chapter 14, because of what happens afterwards. Now, after this story, there's been a long day of Jesus has been preaching to the crowd. He's probably been doing miracles and healing people. He's turned this little bit of food into a vast miracle, and everyone's gone home, you know, full and happy because they've heard some great teaching and they've seen people healed. And Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. Now, I figure if Jesus, who was so busy, had so many people making demands on his time, so many people needing his attention, and yet Jesus made it a priority to go and spend time alone with God. If it's good enough for Jesus, I figure it's good enough for all of us. So that's a great lesson we can learn just from the life of Jesus. We can all pray. You might think you've got nothing else to offer, but you can all pray. In my previous church, there was a, a dear old lady, and she said to me once, Dave, I'm, I'm too old to do anything anymore. All I can do is pray. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? If only there were more people in the world like this dear lady who dedicated herself to prayer. And she may have felt like she had nothing, but I'm certain that God took what she offered, which was her prayer, and blessed people and did great things because of her faithfulness. We can all pray. Pray before trouble comes. Pray in the midst of the trouble. And remember to pray afterwards when God has answered your prayer and solved it. Don't just think, beauty, get on with life. But remember to say thank you and and prepare for the next challenge. So make time for prayer. So Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. Now the crowds, they've all heard some teaching. They've seen the miracles. They've got a free feed. And they, they go home get on with life, think, eh, that was a good show, and they just head on with life. And how many people in the world today are like that? They gratefully accept the oxygen that God provides and the beautiful sunrise and the food and everything, and then they just get on with doing their life, and they're quite happy with that. And the disciples, the disciples got in the boat and were rowing across to the other side. Now, it's been a long, tiring day, and it, now it's now night time and they're rowing and the Bible says that the, the wind picked up and the waves you know, were going and it's probably a storm brewing and the disciples are out there in the lake and they're rowing against the wind trying to get to the other side and it feels like they're not getting anywhere. The wind is blowing, it's dark, it's cold, it's middle of the night. Sometimes do you ever feel like that in your life, like you're working as hard as you can and you're just not getting anywhere and it's dark and it's cold and it's hopeless and Jesus feels like he's far, far away. That's exactly the situation these disciples were in this night. And at three o'clock in the morning, when they've been out there working away all night just trying to get across this lake and feeling like everything's against them, they look up, they look out and out there on the water there's something out there, or someone, and they, some thing is walking on the water towards them, and it kind of looks like Jesus, but maybe it's a ghost, because they just, you know, you don't normally see people walking on the water, and have you ever had the situation where, you know, you think, is this, 
is this the answer to my prayer or is this just another problem? You know, is this the light at the end of the tunnel or is this the headlights of an oncoming train? You know, are things about to get better or are things about to get worse? And they didn't know. And then Jesus says, it's all right, it's me. And Peter, Peter's, Peter's my favourite disciple. Peter's the one who reminds us all that when you love Jesus, even though you mess up, Jesus has got your back. Because Peter's, you know, I'll never leave you, Lord. I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, but on this occasion, Peter looks out and he says, Lord, if that's really you, then let me come out there on, on the water with you. And Jesus says, come. And this is one of my favourite moments in the whole Bible. Peter gets out of the boat. Now, there is nothing, no laws of gravity, no laws of common sense, no experience, nothing on earth that says to Peter, you can get out of this boat and it will be all right. Nothing except the fact that Jesus is out there and Jesus said, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water in the middle of the storm with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but some people who are into these extreme sports, you know, abseiling and whitewater rafting and whatever, well, give me one minute walking on the water in the storm with Jesus and you can forget all the other extreme sports because that's the most awesome experience you could ever have in life. And I would rather have that one minute being Peter on the, walking on the water in the storm than an hour huddling in the boat and hoping for the best or a lifetime with the crowd back on shore not even knowing what's going on. But after a minute, Peter, he's out there having this experience of a lifetime and he looks around and he sees the waves and he feels the wind and he thinks, what am I doing? I can't do this. And he's right. In his own strength, there is no way he can do that. And he starts to sink. And this is another beautiful moment. Jesus is there and Jesus doesn't look at him and go, oh, Peter. No, Jesus just reaches out his hand and he takes Peter by the hand and he lifts him up. And sometimes you probably feel like your circumstances are so overwhelming and you're sinking in this sea of despair and self-doubt and misery and you're overwhelmed and Jesus is just there with his hand reached out wanting to take you by the hand and lift you up. And then they get back in the boat and the storm calms down. See, sometimes in our life, God calls us to do something out of the ordinary, out of our comfort zone, out of our security, out of the familiar. He calls us to get out of the boat and walk with him. But he doesn't leave us out there forever. We have this time and then we get back in the boat and back in the things that that are safe and familiar to us. But you don't want to miss that experience with God when the opportunity arises. So God did something incredible, even though Peter had nothing, nothing to hold on to except the hand of Jesus. But he was perfectly safe. In fact, he was safer out there in the storm with Jesus than he was in the boat. The boat might have been the Titanic. You're actually better off with Jesus. So God can do miracles in the Old Testament. God can do miracles in the New Testament. What about now? You might be thinking, of course God did miracles back in the Bible. That was, that was the point. That's why the Bible was written, you're thinking. But what about today? Now, I can't answer for everyone. All I can do is tell you a couple of experiences from my own life, okay, from my lifetime. 
when I was six years old, I lived in Papua New Guinea. My parents were missionaries. Dad was a pilot with MAF. I was just going to school, doing life. You know, everything was normal. One day, my dad went to the doctor. Dad had this uh, lump on his back that mum had noticed, and it seemed to be growing. And it was even bleeding a little bit. Dad was getting spots of blood on his shirt. And they thought, "Mm, better get this checked out. So dad goes to the doctor. He took one look and thought, hmm, not very good, and did a test. And the eventual diagnosis was uh, multiple malignant melanomas. Serious stuff. And the doctor said to dad, "Um, you need to be on the next plane, not next week, not not next month, the next available plane out of here back to Melbourne for surgery. So I came home from school one day and mum says, we're leaving tomorrow, back to Australia. And literally, as soon as it was light the next morning, we were on a plane flying to, to Port Moresby and then back to Melbourne. And dad goes straight in for surgery. So the doctors opened him up and basically his body was riddled with cancer. So they did what they could, took it out whatever as much as they could and then sewed him up and the surgeons privately told my dad's bosses from the mission organisation, they said, um, he's got about two weeks left to, to live. There's nothing we can do. The official medical report said that there was a 5% chance that my dad would survive for the next two years. But this was a mission organisation. People started praying. Mum's family, um, both my parents, their family and their friends were praying. The church mum grew up in, the church dad grew up in. People all over the place started praying for my dad. And probably praying for my mum too because she's got two small boys. She was nine months pregnant with my sister and suddenly facing a very scary future, thinking she was, would raise three kids alone, thinking her youngest would never get to meet her dad. There's nothing mum could do, nothing anyone could do except pray. Two weeks went by, dad was still around, went back in for his checkup, and there was no cancer. No cancer. See, God in his mercy and in his wisdom and in his compassion, he chose to heal my dad. He just made it all right and took the cancer away. And that was in 1974 and my dad is still alive today. So I I grew up knowing for a fact, knowing beyond any doubt that God answers prayer because my dad was living proof. So God can do fantastic things even when people have nothing. That's one story. Fast forward a few years. I grew up, met Tracy, we had kids. Took a little bit longer than that, but you know. <laughs> but um, but our, our youngest son, James, when he was still fairly young, he started to have seizures. Some days he's, he would twitch and his fingers curl back and, his, and we could tell something's wrong. And we took him to the doctor and they ran some tests and eventually they found a, a cyst the size of a golf ball. In his brain, in his head, pressing against his brain, in his right temporal lobe, and that was causing the seizures. But I've got to tell you, Trace and I, we weren't that stressed. We knew, we God can answer this, God can fix this. We prayed and we believed, and we had absolute confidence that God would heal James. We saved a copy of the the scan because we could visualise the day when one day we would stand up in front of people and say, "Look, there's the scan, and there's the cyst, and here's the afterwards, and the cyst is gone." And praise God. But time went by and James' seizures got worse. Full-on body convulsions, night after night, more frequent and worse. And this is not how it's meant to be. We had another scan and not only was the cyst still there, it was bigger. And this is not how we, we visualised it. This wasn't just the easy escape route that we were hoping for. 
So did, eventually, after many tests and everything, in 2008, they did surgery on James. An eight-hour surgery, they cut open his head and they, cut, they drained out the cyst and they cut away the dead tissue that hadn't formed properly because of the cyst and they sewed him back up and James was better, but he still wasn't right. There was still, the later tests said there was constant epileptic, epileptic activity still going on in his brain. And it was a very difficult time in life for James and, and for us. And it still wasn't good. And it was a long, hard journey. And eventually in 2012, they did a second surgery and they went back in again. And they opened up the same scars and they cut out all of the dead tissue, all of the malformed tissue that hadn't formed properly, basically his whole right temporal lobe, they were moved to stop the seizures. And they warned us there might be some side effects. Now that was August the 14th, 2012. Now since then, not only is James's vision and all those supposed side effects, they're still fine, but also no seizures, no medication, no nothing. James is healed. James is cured. Now God could have just snapped his fingers right at the start and done it, but instead it was a long, slow, difficult process. But eventually we got the same outcome. Other people I know in life who have issues that God could fix, but it goes on a lot and basically they depend on medication and probably will for their whole life to keep things under control. Now, does God love some people more and he just fixes them like that and other people have to go through a process and other people have to live with it forever? Well, it doesn't mean God loves some people more than others. It just means that God in his wisdom sees the big picture Sometimes there are lessons we need to learn through the experiences. We, we tend to be pretty selfish. We just, our prayer is always, Lord, just take away the pain and you know, a couple of million bucks would be nice too. Thank you very much. <laughs> but, but God, his ways are not our ways and he has things under control. Even, and so don't ever think that when you don't get the answer that you want, that means that God's not listening or God doesn't care or God hasn't heard your prayer. God does answer our prayer, but in his way, he answers them in different ways. Some people, it's just instant. Sometimes it's a long process. Sometimes it's a lifelong of managing and dealing with it. But God is always in control. Going back to the widow in Second Kings, I chose this story as the starting and ending point of this today, today's sermon because not only does she illustrate my point that God can do amazing and fantastic things even when we have nothing, but in actual fact, I think this widow illustrates all of humanity, every human being who has ever lived, because we all have a debt we cannot pay. As I mentioned before with communion, we have all sinned. Romans tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all fail God's standard. And there is nothing we can do about that. And it also says the wages, the consequences, the results of that sin is death. So we all have a debt that we cannot pay. And the consequences are unimaginable. An eternity without God. An eternity without hope. And there is nothing we can do about it. Except that that verse in Romans goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Last Sunday we celebrated Easter. 
And at communion this morning, we remembered it. And that's what Easter was all about when Jesus said, I know there's nothing you can do, but I will do it for you. I will cop the rap. I will take the punishment. The sentence that you deserved and that I deserved, Jesus says, I've got this. I will take it for you. And Jesus did the most beautiful, awesome, heroic, life-changing, fantastic, incredible thing in the history of mankind, even though we had nothing. Ah, I think it's great anyway. So the point, the point for all of us, whether you're a regular, whether you're a committed Christian, whether you're a visitor, whether you've never before said yes to Jesus, the point for all of us, through all our problems, through all our challenges, all our trials, through all our circumstances, even when our problems seem far bigger than our resources or our abilities to solve it, there is one constant, that God is always watching, always listening, always caring, always providing, always answering, even when we have nothing. God is always saying, I've got this, even when we don't deserve it. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. And Psalm 55 is almost the same. It says, Give your burdens to the Lord, and he will take care of you. So God can do amazing, incredible, wonderful things, even when we have nothing. So no matter what your circumstances are, don't ever, ever let go of the hand of Jesus. Amen.